0: You're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only, exclusions apply. See ebaymotors.com. Today on Something You Should Know, people say the damp and cold weather makes their aches and pains worse, but does it really? Then, understanding romantic love and how to keep that love alive for a long time.
1: If you want to sustain romance, do novel things together. Novelty, novelty, novelty. It drives up the dopamine system in the brain and gives you feelings of romantic love. So this is why vacations, by the way, are so nice and romantic because it is so novel.
0: Then, why does your dog twitch and paddle while it's sleeping? Should you be concerned? And achieving your goals, any goal, becomes easier if you change the way you look at it. And the research proves it.
2: When you can orient your visual attention to your goal, to your finish line, it doesn't hurt as much to make it there. We can walk faster, and in fact, that's, it's not magic. It's because it's changed our psychology.
0: All this today on Something You Should Know. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then, through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, Something you should know. Fascinating intel. The world's top experts. And practical advice you can use in your life. Today, Something You Should Know with Mike Carruthers. Hi, welcome to Something You Should Know. I'm happy to announce that January was our most listened to month of all time. And we've been at this now, what, three and a half years. In January, we took a big jump in the number of people listening so, thanks. First up today, for as long as I can remember, I have heard people talk about, usually older people, talk about how the cold weather or the damp weather affects their aches and pains, makes them worse. Well, it turns out there is actually no relationship between aches and pains and the weather. None. An Australian study confirmed other research that says it is all in your head. The idea that weather affects pain in muscles and joints goes back centuries, centuries. But when studied closely, there is no association between back pain and temperature, humidity, air pressure, wind direction, or precipitation. What they did find is that bad weather makes people more aware of the pain and makes them more likely to attribute the pain to the bad weather. But when people feel pain on sunny days, they make no association with the weather. And that is something you should know. Why is love so difficult? People say they want love, and yet the divorce rate would indicate it's pretty hard to find. Early on in a love relationship seems a lot easier than later on in a love relationship. Yet people keep trying. And sure, we're biologically driven to find love because we need to keep the species alive, But why does doing that make so many people so miserable? What can we do about that? Well, we can talk with Helen Fisher. She's a biological anthropologist and author of the book, The Anatomy of Love. She was a guest here a while back on episode 147, discussing a a related topic. But this is a brand new discussion about how love really does and doesn't work. And her insight just might help you understand what romantic love is all about. Hi, Helen, welcome.
1: I'm delighted to be with you.
0: So, talk about what love is. I mean, everyone who has felt love knows what it feels like personally, but does science or do you have a definition?
1: Well, I think we're beginning to figure it out, yes. Uh, and uh, First of all, the question is what kind of love. I'm quite positive, well, I've been able to prove that we've evolved three different brain systems for mating and reproduction. One is the sex drive, which some people would regard as a certain part of, a part of love. The sex drive being one. The second being feelings of intense romantic love. And the third uh, being feelings of deep attachment. And I think that um, I, we've been able to prove that there are different brain systems And that they really evolved for different reasons. I mean, the sex drive gets you out there looking for a whole range of partners. You don't even have to be in love with somebody to have sex with them. I think romantic love then evolved to enable you to focus your mating energy on just one individual at a time. And that third brain system of attachment evolved to enable you to stick with that partner at least long enough to raise a child together as a team
0: every love relationship seems to go through stages there's that you know excitement stage in the beginning and then the relationship develops into something else and so go through the stages
1: the first thing that happens when you fall in love is a person takes on what I call special meaning everything about them becomes special the car they Um, Drive is different from every other car in the parking lot. Their book bag is different from every other book bag at school. Um, Their workplace is different from every other workstation. So everything becomes special. Then you focus on them. You know, these people can list what they don't like about their partner, but then they just sweep that aside and focus on what they do. Elation when things are going well, mood swings into horrible despair when things are going poorly. Energy, uh, intense energy. You can walk all night and talk till dawn. Um, real physiological responses. I mean, butterflies in the stomach, maybe weak knees, uh, or a pounding heart, or a dry, uh, dry mouth when you, you know, when you finally run into the person, or talk to them on the phone, or even email them. And all kinds of. Uh, they call it separation anxiety. You don't want to be apart. And, in fact, I made up a term called frustration attraction. When you are apart and you don't hear from them, they don't write, they don't call, you don't know where they are, you like them more. Uh, this brain system for romantic love, you know, kicks in even more action uh, of intense uh, craving for the person. You also have a real sexual desire for the person, but the three main characteristics of romantic love are foremost, although sure you'd like to have sex with them, what you really want them to do is to call, to write, to ask you out, to say that they love you. Uh, you're highly motivated to win this person, what people will do uh, when they're madly in love, and last but not least, somebody is camping in your head. That's the single most uh, largest indication of romantic love. Somebody is camping in your head. You wake up thinking about them, you go to bed thinking about them, you check your email or your text messages or your phone or uh, uh, whatever. And by the way, these characteristics are the same in every country in the world. I mean, Ancient Japanese poetry is saying exactly the same thing that poetry from Arabia is saying, that myths and legends are saying among the Eskimos or people up the Amazon. I mean, this is the basic brain system of romantic love.
0: So is there any sense when people fall head over heels for somebody, what is it about them or that couple or that other person or me that makes that person so special as opposed to everybody
1: else? You know, I'm chief science advisor to Match.com, the dating site, and they came to me in uh, 2005, and asked me that exact question, and there's all kinds of cultural reasons uh, that we do know. I mean, we do tend to fall in love with somebody from the same socioeconomic background, same general level of intelligence, the same level of of good looks and education, same ethnic background, same religious and social values, same reproductive goals. I mean, you want to have somebody who's going to want to have children if you do, et cetera, et cetera. So there's all kinds of cultural things, but I began to think to myself, you know, you can walk into a room and everybody's From your background and level of intelligence and good looks, and you don't fall in love with all of them. So could basic biology play a role? And I, I've been able to sort of sneak into Mother's Kitchen and figure that one out a bit. And here's what I've found. People who are very expressive of the dopamine system I call explorers. They're novelty-seeking, risk-taking, curious, creative, spontaneous, energetic, mentally flexible people. They go for people like themselves. Curious, creative people want partners like that. People are very high of this expressive of the traits in the serotonin system. I call them builders. They're traditional, conventional. They follow the rules. They respect authority. They're concrete rather than theoretical thinkers. Um, they like rule plans, uh, schedules, routines. They tend to be more religious. Uh, religiosity, there's a gene for religiosity that's in the serotonin system. And they also go for people like themselves. I think a good example is Mike Pence. Or Mitt Romney. They've married somebody who's very traditional, as they are. In the other two cases, opposites attract. High testosterone people go for high estrogen, and high estrogen go for high testosterone. So the high testosterone kind of thinker is um, analytical, logical, direct, decisive, tough-minded, uh, good at uh, things like mechanics, engineering, computers, math, and they go for the high estrogen. Uh, I call them negotiators. These people tend to be, oh, they're contextual, long-term thinkers. Uh, they uh, they can deal well with ambiguity. They're imaginative. They've got very good people skills. They're good at reading posture, gesture, tone of voice, etc. And they're quite empathetic and trusting. They go for their opposite, high testosterone. But what's different about my questionnaire is that the brain doesn't work in buckets. It, we express some of the traits in all four of these basic brain systems. So I, for example, I'm very high dopamine. I, I make my living being creative. I mean, when you write books, you've you got to be creative with every paragraph. I travel a great deal, et cetera. And my boyfriend is the same. And so the bottom line is from in the dopamine scale, we we're very similar, and that works very well. He's very high testosterone, and I'm very high estrogen. That also works very well because those are natural matches. He's higher on the serotonin system, so he's, he's better at following the rules, at respecting authority, at making plans and schedules than I am. Uh, he's more interested in that. And really, I rather like that. So the uh, bottom line is, I, uh, as I said, 14 million people have taken this questionnaire, and I've studied 100,000 of them. No two people answered those 56 questions the same way. But there's patterns to nature, there's patterns to culture, and as it turns out, there's patterns to personality and patterns to make choice.
0: Okay. We're talking about love today. We're talking with Helen Fisher, who is a biological anthropologist, and the name of her book is The Anatomy of Love. If you have a job opening and you need to hire someone, what are the chances, when you think about it, what are the chances of finding a great match inside your circle of influence. Pretty slim. I mean, even if you put the word out there, a lot of people who may be perfect are never going to hear about it. That's why you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that will help you find quality candidates fast. And Indeed does it all. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with these candidates faster. But it's not just about the speed, it's about the quality. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. What I love about Indeed is how efficient it is. You get quality candidates, you get them fast, and well, that's what it's all about. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, too. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. And listeners to this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash something. Go to Indeed.com slash something right now, and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on Something You Should Know. Indeed.com something. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. I want to give a shout out to Claritin for supporting this episode. You see, for really as long as I can remember, I have had to cope with seasonal allergies. Stuffy nose, watery eyes, the whole deal. And the worst for me is it messes up my sleep. Ask for Claritin D at your local pharmacy counter. You don't even need a prescription. Go to Claritin.com right now for a discount so you can live Claritin clear. Use as directed. So Helen, you say there are patterns to mate choice, but do these patterns to mate choice result in a mate who is also compatible in the long run? In other words, yeah, you may be attracted to someone initially, but does that necessarily mean it's a good match for the long run?
1: Well, you'd have to guess, what discuss what the word, word good is. I mean, I would say a good match is people who are happy with each other, want to be there, want to get home, want to keep laughing, want to make love, want to go on vacations together, want to build a life, want to cooperate in, with her family and his family, etc. But I actually do know, we have stumbled on... What happens in the brain when you are in a happy partnership? We put some people in the brain scanner using fMRI uh, who kept, kept coming into the lab. These were people in their 50s and 60s, and they kept on saying, I've been married for 21 years, and I'm still in love with him or in love with her. Not just loving, but in love with the person. So we didn't know. I mean, Americans don't believe you can remain in love. So we put them in the machine, and sure enough, we found activity in basically the same brain regions as among those who had just fallen, just fallen happily in love and were very young. But this is what we found about happiness. There's all kinds of cultural, psychological reasons for to get happy, stay happy. I mean, don't show contempt, don't threaten divorce, listen actively, compromise, all those kinds of, all good, all good. But this is what the brain says. We put these people who are in long-term love into the relationship in two places, in China and in the United States. And if you score high, we give them a lot of personality questionnaires before we put them in the, in the machine. And if you scored high on happiness in the partnership, in long-term partnership, these are the three brain regions that are active in you. A brain region linked with empathy, a brain region linked with controlling your own stress and your own emotions, and a brain region linked with what we call positive illusions the ability to overlook what you don't like about somebody and focus on what you do. And in fact, there's a huge brain region that is linked with what we call negativity bias. The brain is built to remember the negative. And when you're madly in love with somebody, activity in that brain region reduces. So those are the three basic brain regions in a long-term happy partnership uh, that are associated with happiness.
0: Well you said, you said at the beginning you said at the beginning that that you know when you're madly in love you can list all the things that are wrong with your partner but you you hide that away and right. and, and what comes at later is you pull that list out and focus on that and so you're saying that some people don't pull that list out
1: Exactly or they know how to handle it Now for example I used to have a boyfriend who was very slow Oh my god he he t- walked so slowly he talked so slowly sometimes it would drive me a little crazy but then I would think to myself, You know what, Helen? He might walk slowly I and mean, he was a brilliant man. I mean he actually did forty marathons, but he but he was just slow in his off time. And I said to myself, Okay, he walks slowly, he talks slowly, but when when, when we go to a museum he looks so carefully at a painting and then we go out to dinner and he really talks about the meaning and this and that And so I would say to myself, okay, he's walking really slowly. We're not going to make it past this light in New York City. We can stop. That's fine. But look what I get from that slowness. And so, you know, if you're really in love with somebody, you you can train yourself to think, okay, well, I, I do get annoyed at this, but God, he's so good at this and this and this. So that's the way you do it.
0: Yeah, and well, but that takes some real conscious deliberate effort to b- put aside the things that drive you nuts like your boyfriend's slowness to really focus on the positive and and be empathetic despite the flaws.
1: I would certainly suggest adopting some empathy and controlling your own stress and emotions and overlooking the po- negative, but also I would um, Keep all three of these basic brain systems alive. I mean, if you want to sustain romance, do novel things together. Novelty, novelty, novelty. It drives up the dopamine system in the brain and gives you feelings of romantic love. So I would go do novel things with my partner to sustain feelings of romantic love. This is why vacations, by the way, are so nice and romantic because it is so novel. I would keep the sex life alive. Sex is very good for you. If you. It's good for the muscles and the skin. And the, it's very, it apparently lowers uh, cholesterol and cortisol and boosts mood and helps with memory. And if you're in a good relationship, all those hugs and everything uh, drives up the oxytocin system, gives you feelings of attachment. Uh, laughter drives up the dopamine system. So anyway, I keep the sex drive alive. I keep the romantic love alive, and I would keep attachment alive. And the thing to to do there is to stay in touch. Any kind of nice touch drives up the oxytocin system and can can, and can give you those feelings of attachment. So, I mean, walk arm in arm, hold hands in the movies, learn to sleep in each other's arms. At least start that way at night when you go to sleep get rid of the two big armchairs and sit together on the couch to watch television. I mean, we now know enough about the brain to really make good partnerships. If if, if, we, if we pick the right person and just do a little bit of uh, uh, tidying up now and then.
0: I've always thought it's interesting that we have this word, love, that applies to so many things that... That there is some, like, you know, the, the romantic love is very different than the love I uh, I have for my mother. I mean, but it's still called love, and it, yet it's not the same thing. And the, and the love I have for someone in an early part of the relationship doesn't feel anything, really, like it does 20 years later. So why is it all called love?
1: And it's a wonderful question. In one of my books, Anatomy of Love, I talk about different cultures that do have different words for it. Well, we have the word romantic love, and we have the word um, sexual love, (laughs) and we have the word feelings of deep attachment and commitment. So there are some different words, but I I agree with you that it is sort of amazing. You know what? I and my colleagues are among the first people who really studied love. And I started it, you know, I mean, what, in the 70s? I mean, when I wrote my first academic paper on romantic love, one of the four reviewers said, you can't study this. Love is part of the supernatural. And I thought to myself, this is bizarre. This person's a scientist. Anger is not supernatural. Fear isn't supernatural. Startling isn't feel, uh, 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 supernatural. Disgust isn't. We know the brain circuitry for that. Why wouldn't there be brain circuitry to this powerful mating drive? Uh, to love somebody, so.
0: But at its core, isn't it just that? It's a mating, it is a powerful mating drive to keep going, to to have children so they can have children so they can have children.
1: Well, it evolved, I think, uh, largely for reproduction. Bottom line is, we came down out of the trees, we began to stand up on two feet instead of four, Females began to have to carry their babies in their arms instead of on their backs. You know, a chimpanzee just walks along with her baby on her back. When you're walking on two feet, you've got to carry it in your arms. And I don't see how a four-million-year-old woman would have been able to carry the equivalent of a bowling ball in one arm, a squirming bowling ball in one arm, and sticks and stones in the other arm, and feed and protect herself. So pair-binding or forming a partnership began to evolve in women. And in men, I don't see how a man four million years ago could really protect a harem of females or, or even feed them, um, but he could protect one. And, and together, we evolved all kinds of brain systems that support pairing up to rear our babies. And one of them is um, a real drive. Or Romantic love is a drive. It comes from the most primitive parts of the brain. It's a drive. It's going to be around as long as we're a species. Modern technology can't kill love. I mean, modern technology is changing courtship, but it's not changing love. And we also evolved, you know, um, jealousy and, and abandonment rage and uh, uh, feelings of deep attachment and then all kinds of cultural mechanisms, you know, marriage, divorce, I mean, rings and, and you know, churches, ceremonies and all kinds of things. But the basic brain system, yes, evolved for reproduction.
0: And on we go.
1: And on we will always go.
0: (laughs) Well, I think it's always interesting and important to have these conversations because we all want to understand love better. We all want to do it better. And the more we understand, perhaps the better we can do. Helen Fisher has been my guest. She is a biological anthropologist, and her book is The Anatomy of Love. You'll find a link to her book in the show notes. Thank you for being here, Helen. Something you should know, I'm pretty sure you're going to like TED Talks Daily. And you get TED Talks Daily wherever you get your podcasts. Every goal you set for yourself starts with the best of intentions, and yet so often goals are never reached. What happens? Lack of willpower? Discouragement? Or are there other forces at work you may not realize? Emily Balchettis is an associate professor of psychology at New York University, and she's really explored this. She's author of a book called Clearer, Closer, Better, How Successful People See the World. Hi, Emily. Welcome to Something You Should Know.
2: Hi, nice to be here.
0: So it would seem anyway that goals fail because people people just don't stick with them for whatever reason. Maybe they decide they really don't care, or it's too hard, or... Or why? Why?
2: I don't think that the problem is that that people don't care. I think by the very fact that we do continue to set goals throughout our life and that we might feel disappointed in ourselves from time to time at, at being unable to meet them means, in fact, that we do care. It's just that the strategies we are often using to pursue those goals perhaps aren't the right ones. And we may not be aware of what's getting in our way. But don't
0: you think, too, that... Sometimes people say things like, I'm going to lose weight, and, and or I'm going to exercise more, or I'm going to do things, because lots of other people are doing those things. But there's really no deep motivation internally to do them. It's just that that's what other people say, and that's what you're supposed to do, and the doctor says you'd be healthier if you did them. But, yeah maybe but i i i still i still don't have that whatever that is to really do it
2: that's part of the problem for sure is that maybe we're externally motivated rather than internally motivated somebody told us that we should do it but we're not really certain we're on the same page with that prescription and that can be challenging because we may not have that internal drive that's going to help us overcome obstacles but that's only part of the problem. There are things that we really do care about that despite that internal motivation that we have, we still can't figure out a way forward. And I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we perhaps don't realize what all the challenges are that stand in front of us as we're setting off on our journey or even as we're in the middle of it.
0: So how do you, how do you fix that? How do you change that thinking so that you, you, you're, you have a better chance of succeeding?
2: First steps that we took when we were studying uh, people's exercise habits was trying to figure out well what might be some of those unknown obstacles that people are facing, and what we discovered in our research in my lab is actually it's not just what we're thinking and what we're telling ourselves that that's part of the problem too, but it's literally when we're looking at the world around ourselves that we're we're looking in a way that perhaps doesn't serve our best interests we might be seeing the world in a way that stacks challenges against us and we don't have an awareness of that and so if we don't know that that's part of the problem, we also don't know that could be part of the solution. So the first step for us was, was figuring that out, that there is something about the way we're looking at the world around us that's contributing to our ineffectiveness at, say, meeting our, our exercise goals, and then trying to reshape that to teach people strategies to see the world in different ways that could help them uh, better meet their ambitions.
0: Things like what?
2: Well, one of the things that we discovered was that people's states of their own body are leading them to see distances in different ways so that people who are heavier or who are more fatigued, who experience maybe some uh, chronic pains, literally see the distance to a stop sign or to the end of the block as farther than people who weigh less, who don't experience the same sorts of chronic pain or chronic fatigue issues. And then that perception really matters. So if it looks further away to you than it does to somebody else, or than it might to you if you were in a different state of mind or body, then it makes it a little bit more challenging to want to take it on, to feel like you can take it on, and then, in fact, to make good on that.
0: Well, yeah, if you you think it's a bigger job than everybody else thinks it is, and a bigger job than it actually is, then why would Mm -hmm. you do that?
2: Exactly. And it's not just thinking. That's what is unique about what our lab has demonstrated. Yes, our thoughts about whether something is challenging, of course, can contribute to whether we feel like we have the resources that this job would take. But it's so deeply ingrained in us, it's changing our visual experience as well. To people, it literally looks further, not just that they think that it's farther, it looks farther away. And that's not something that people are aware of.
0: Well, you're certainly the expert on this because you've studied this, but I've always thought, well, not always, I've thought that, especially with something like exercise, that that people give up on it because success doesn't enter the picture until much, much later. They don't see success as, as doing the exercise. They're waiting for some kind of objective result, bigger muscles, smaller waistline. That's success, not that I showed up and did it, And that that's too far away.
2: That's a second strategy, yeah, that, that is part of the problem and part of the solution for overcoming challenges. Often when we find ourselves in a particular uh, way of being or when we find ourselves in a, in a particular state and we've now decided, all right, this is the day that I'm going to make a change, whatever it was that had been building in us, perhaps festering and leading us to the to this day where we say, today I'm going to start a new chapter of my life, often what people do is at that moment they set a goal that is, that's really challenging to accomplish, that's very lofty, that perhaps reflects what their ideal self might look like, and and that's great, we should have those lofty ambitions, but when we leave it at setting the goal at such an perhaps um, impossibly challenging, far-off future um, end state, then, yeah, it might look like the progress that we're making from one day to the next is just not quickly enough getting us to that finish line that we're hoping to cross over. So that is one of the challenges often is that people set goals that are just um, too challenging at the outset and don't and don't take a second uh, step of sort of breaking that larger goal down into more incremental steps so that going to the gym this day or going for a walk or a run this day actually does look like substantial progress to this micro goal that I've set. And of course, once we meet one of those micro goals, we can, we can relish in that success, know that we have met some sort of objective standard that is an important marker or milestone in meeting that bigger, loftier, more ambitious goal that we've set for ourselves at the outset.
0: Yeah, well, one of the, I think one of the things that, for example, that keeps me going to the gym is that when I walk out of the gym, that feels great it, it, it 's being being there is not the most pleasant thing, but when I walk out, it feels great, and that to me is the success
2: mhm and and I think that 's a great way to cognitively reframe what success looks like as we 're on this journey towards maybe something bigger and better than just feeling good today if If we were to say my goal is to lose twenty pounds, and every day we checked in with that scale, which is not something that some instructions or programs would recommend we're not going to see a pound drop off every day. And in fact, as people change their exercise, they often change their eating. And it might take some time to figure out that equilibrium where what we're burning off is more than what we're taking in. And so sometimes weight actually creeps up when people have set goals to lose it. So rather than deciding every day I need to see progress with that number going lower on the scale, I think that's an excellent strategy of thinking what are other ways that I can index success in the short term that that are going to Continue to motivate me and benefit me as I pursue something that's going to take uh, a longer, a longer haul. Like, well, like recognizing that it feels good. I feel good at the end of the day. Man, yeah, my muscles might be sore, but I feel happier.
0: Well, and isn't it true that especially with exercise, that when people start to exercise, they get hungrier and and often add weight.
2: Yeah, exactly. I I was just talking with a friend of mine, another social psychologist who also happens to be an incredible runner. His name is Nathan DeWall. And he was telling me uh, that when he first started going from hardly being able to run a a few miles without feeling incredibly winded to to being able to run 135 miles through the desert and up mountains, how did he get from that start to that end state? Well, he started off by actually gaining a lot of weight because he didn't realize how how metabolism changes, how hunger changes as you start to uh, exercise more.
0: When you have a goal, and it's clear that it's not going to work, you've stopped doing whatever you need to do to achieve that goal, when that happens, if you reset the goal, you know, okay, let's let's try again, does it become harder? It would seem that it, that it would in the sense that... It, you failed. You failed at it. And so now you think, well, here, I'm going to go do this again, and I'm probably, I'm probably going to fail again.
2: Yeah, that's true. How we think about failure um, is can be part of the challenge. So when we think about failure, we can use that word failure. And, of course, that's demotivating. We feel bad about ourselves because it, feel like, it feels like despite my efforts, de- despite the energy that I've invested here, I've, quote-unquote, failed. But we can, again, cognitively reframe those blips in the road, and instead of thinking about them as failures, they're opportunities for growth. And when we think about that, think about a blip, as an opportunity to grow or to change, we can more readily accept when we've experienced a setback. We can reflect on that experience and decide what can I do differently or better in the future. It gives us a sense of control that, okay, I know if I experience this temptation or this obstacle again in the future, it's not gonna mark the imminence of failure, but instead it'll be a new opportunity to apply what I've just reflected on and just learned to overcome a challenge in the future. So, so, of course, there, there are things that are going to prove troublesome, problematic, and, uh, and maybe thwart our, our best efforts to meet a goal. But if we can, instead of chastising ourselves or using the word failure to describe a setback as we face and, and attempt to surmount one of those obstacles, and instead reframe that as an opportunity for growth and for learning... I think we might have a healthier approach to what are the normal stumbles and and tribulations that we experience as we work towards our goals. I also wanted to comment in your question, you were talking about experts and how people who are experts might approach this. Um, And I wanted to just put out there in our conversation something else that I learned when I started talking to experts. I found myself invited to go to a YMCA uh, one cold winter night. And I saw a team um, of runners, a, a running club that was sitting, stretching on the on the side of the track. And I was invited to come talk with these people. And when I learned about them, I saw that there were some high school students who you know, were training for, for their high school running clubs. And then there were some older, older people that were there as well, out of high school. And when I talked with them, I found out that in fact they were Olympic athletes. Some of them had in fact won gold medals at one of the most recent Olympic games. And what I really wanted to know was how do they go about training? How do they go about running, especially when they're trying to hit a new PR or to break some record of, of some other sort? And what I found out in these interviews is that it, part of their secret to success, besides many things, is the way that they look at their environment. And in fact, what they they told us is that they keep this more narrowed focus of attention, almost as if a spotlight is shining on either the actual finish line or sort of a finish line that they envision for themselves if they're running a longer race. It's as if they have blinders on, in a sense, and are just really focused on whatever is the next target that they're hitting. And now that might seem intuitive or like, of course, of course, they're exceptionally focused in that way. But you could also think of the alternative where being aware of your competition and seeing who's coming up upon you on the sides might also be useful. But that's not the strategy that they use. And instead, really, their their gaze is focused on a target that they've considered to be the finish line for this micro goal that they've set. And we took that inspiration from these Olympic athletes and that insight that they offered in these interviews and then tried to see if that could be applicable to just everyday people that are, that are struggling to meet their own exercise goals, not those that are trying to win the next marathon or, 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 or beat some PR, but people like me, like my mom, who are just trying to get out and exercise more effectively So what we did was create this intervention where we taught people how to use that strategy that those Olympic athletes use, how to find a a target, find a goal that might be your own finish line a couple blocks ahead or a half a mile ahead, something that they can see, and to imagine a spotlight is shining just on that target and to keep their focus on that target until they hit it. And then to set another goal, find another uh, micro finish line, another few blocks up ahead and keep your attention focused on that. And, and we compared the effectiveness of that strategy for exercising against against what people just naturally do. We told them, look around the world as, as you would want to, as you normally do. And what we found is that, that people who use that narrowed, attentional style when they, did, when they engaged in an exercise, walking to a finish line as quickly as they could um, in the lab with us measuring wh- how they performed, what we found is that people... At the end of that, who had narrowed their attention, said that the exercise was 17% less painful than people who looked around the world as they naturally would. The distance was exactly the same. The exercise was exactly the same. But when they changed their approach to looking at their environment, it didn't feel as bad on their bodies. It didn't hurt as much. And they, in fact, walked faster. They walked 23% faster than people who looked around the world as they naturally would.
0: So what you're saying if I if I hear you correctly is that the secret is to keep your mind on the goal rather than oh this hurts or this is hard or this is painful that instead you're you're keeping your thoughts focused on the goal.
2: When you can orient your visual attention to your goal, to your finish line, it doesn't hurt as much to make it there. We can walk faster, and in fact, that's, it's not magic. It's because it's changed our psychology. When it feels like that distance or looks like that distance isn't going to be as far, we don't, uh, we don't judge the, the exercise to be as difficult in prospect, and we believe in our own ability to surmount that challenge to a greater degree. It changes our own psychology in a way that can promote more efficient activity. We, in fact, took that intervention that we had tested in our lab, and we taught it to more people, hundreds of more people, and, uh, and asked them to, this, to try to use that strategy, that eyes on the prize strategy for the next week. We're not there. We're not there in their ear telling them, reminding them about this strategy. Whether they believed in it or not is up to them. Whether they would um, choose to continue to use it was, was up to them. But we said, if you do happen to go out on a walk and you use this strategy, um, send us a screenshot of your app telling us how far you went and how how long you walked and how many steps you took. And what we found is that, that yeah, people said it's a little bit more challenging to do this thing that that we had instructed them on to narrow their attention compared to just letting them look around as they naturally would, but they were no less able to go out on walks. And in fact, they went on 20% more walks the following week than people who just uh, looked around the world as they naturally would. They walked more often using this strategy that they acknowledged was a little bit more challenging than what they had already been doing. And on each of those walks, they They walked 50% further distance, so instead of a mile, they walked a mile and a half, and they took 85% more steps. If you're counting your steps and looking at, did I hit my 10,000 steps a day marker, in each of those walks, they they took 85% more, almost double, like just a bit shy of double the, the number of steps in each walk that they took. So we were really excited about that because it meant that this this strategy or this intervention to shape the way that people are looking at the world around them, it's exciting because it doesn't cost anything. You don't have to sign up for a yearly membership people regardless of how healthy uh, they were, whether they were close to meeting their goal or far from meeting their goal, uh, can implement this strategy. And it seemed to be particularly effective. It seemed effective for people regardless of where they're at in the course of trying to meet a health and physical activity uh, goal that they had set.
0: Do you think that health and physical activity goals are substantially different than any other goal. Does this work in, in, do you suspect, in anything? Or is there something particular about exercise that that stymies people?
2: I don't think exercise is unique or a one-off domain in which only this strategy applies. I do think that there's something, uh, there's, this fits into a category of goals that require sort of a lifetime commitment. Um, and that is what makes them particularly challenging. So if we have a weight that we're trying to hit, that's great. And we can work towards hitting that goal and, and, and challenges apply and, and strategies can apply to help us. But then, but then once we've hit that ideal weight, we have to maintain it. And so really, health is, is a goal in which it is a, a chronically active one for us, whether we've, we've hit our mark, once we've hit our mark, then the, the goal isn't gone, we're not done, we can't rest on our laurels, but the way that we approach it, and what does it mean to have a health goal changes, it's about maintenance now, but it's never, it's never off, and, and there's other domains of our life that probably share, um, share those qualities, something that requires continual commitment. Like, like child raising and uh, anything that might involve relationships it's, you know, you, or your own personal happiness. These aren't things that once you've hit it, once you've demonstrated you're a good mom or you're a good dad or you're happy today and you don't feel depressed today, it doesn't mean that we're done working. It means tomorrow the goal might, be, might look different, the way we approach it might look different, but it's not over.
0: Well, when you think about it, when you're trying to reach a goal, there is that tendency to kind of focus on how hard it is and how painful it is and the sacrifice. And and it's interesting to hear that if you focus more on the goal, it actually, it just simply makes it a lot easier. My guest has been Emily Balchettis. She is an associate professor of psychology at New York University, and she's author of a book called Clearer, Closer, Better, How Successful People See the World. And there's a link to that book in the show notes. Have you ever watched a dog, your dog, when it's sleeping and it seems like it's running in its sleep or it's paddling or it's twitching and you probably think your dog is dreaming about something fun like running or catching a frisbee or swimming. And according to research, that is exactly what it is. It's most common in very young and very old dogs. That's because there's part of the brain stem in a dog that has these two switches that regulate movement during sleep. And these switches are not fully developed in younger dogs and may have grown weak in older dogs and the muscles are not completely turned off during dreaming. So the animal starts to move. It's nothing to be concerned about unless you think your dog is actually having a seizure. And the way you tell the difference is, if your dog is dreaming, these movements are usually brief, less than 30 seconds, and intermittent. When a dog has a seizure, the limbs of the dog are rigid, stiff, and the movements are more violent. And that is something you should know. You know, we have grown the audience for this podcast by leaps and bounds, and almost exclusively by you and other listeners sharing it with people they know. So, keep up the good work. I'm Mike Carruthers. Thanks for listening today to Something You Should Know. The Bigger Pockets Portfolio of Podcasts are worthy of your investment. We're having a real conversation as real real estate investors. New episodes available
2: every day. It's important to buy where it makes money and not necessarily where you want to travel to.
0: Bigger pockets on the market. Rookie Real Estate or Money Podcast. The purpose of flipping is to create more cash so then you can reinvest into other types of properties. The Bigger Pockets Podcast on YouTube or wherever you listen.